Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles now to Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 25. Mark chapter 11. If you need a Bible, you can find a Black Pew Bible in front of you if you're here in our sanctuary, and it's on page 847 of that Bible. Mark chapter 11. I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers." And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you curse is withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against another so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. In our study of the Gospel of Mark, we come this morning to a passage that presents us with a number of questions. At a basic level, what Jesus did in these verses is pretty clear. He was hungry, and he cursed a tree. He didn't like what was happening in the temple, so he cleared it out. And he had a conversation with his disciples afterward, talked to them about prayer. But how do all these verses relate? What does a tree have to do with a temple? What was Jesus getting at when he talked about praying for a, a mountain to move? And why does he tack on a note to forgive at the end? And even more fundamentally, what's up with Jesus in this tree? Why did Jesus curse it? And why did he curse it, even if it wasn't the season, if it wasn't even the season for figs? Was he really that hangry? 
You, you might be thinking, I get hungry too, but I don't, I don't take it out on the orange tree in my backyard. We, we just don't really expect something like this from Jesus. So what was going on? Those are a lot of good questions. And we're going to try to answer them this morning. But even though this section of Mark's gospel might initially cause some confusion, upon closer inspection, if you stay with me this morning, I trust that you will come to see how Mark does a masterful job of weaving the events in this passage together. He purposely arranges these events to bring the the full weight of Jesus' message that day to bear upon us all. Mark sandwiches Jesus' clearing of the temple between his cursing of the fig tree and his instructions to his disciples for a reason. Uh, Unlike Matthew, who condenses the events in his gospel, and unlike Luke, who just briefly mentions Jesus in the temple, and unlike John, who writes about Jesus clearing out the temple earlier in his gospel, Mark clearly records what Jesus did to a fig tree and what he did inside the temple court to show us how important it is to be fruitful and also how important it is to be prayerful. Jesus wasn't just a hangry, trouble-making, you know, wannabe. He is the holy and true Messiah. And as we follow him into Jerusalem on the Monday morning of Passion Week, we will learn how crucial it is for us to, to bear fruit as people of prayer if we really want to follow him as our king. This morning, we're going to encounter the prevalence of fruitlessness in verses 12 through 19, and then we'll examine the prerequisite of prayerfulness in verses 20 to 25. And as we consider Jesus and a tree and a, and a temple We'll see how dangerous it is to be fruitless and how necessary it is to pray. So we'll begin with the fruitlessness, the prevalence of fruitlessness. Now, if you were with us last week, you'll hopefully remember that Jesus had entered to Jerusalem, entered into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey to shouts of Hosanna as people welcomed him into the city. After years of ministry in which Jesus was reluctant to let others crown him king and reluctant to stoke their populist ambitions for him, as he made his way into Jerusalem on the Sunday before his death, Jesus finally revealed himself as the Messiah and King of Israel. He revealed himself openly as the one who had come to fulfill prophecy, but he also revealed himself as a humble king. And when he entered Jerusalem that day, he went straight into the temple. He took note of what was happening there, and then he went back out to Bethany, where he spent the night. And in many ways, it was a a disappointing way to end a day full of excitement and expectation. Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem in apparent triumph, but he left it with very little fanfare that night. Yet, this was all part of his plan. And we'll see that plan continue to unfold in our passage today as we meet Jesus the following morning on his way back into Jerusalem. And we begin to see the prevalence of fruitlessness in Israel 
as Jesus encountered a fruitless tree in verses 12 to 14. A fruitless tree. Mark writes in verse 12 that on the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Matthew 21, 18 tells us that it was early morning. And so Jesus might not have had breakfast yet. It's also possible that he didn't eat the night before, that the previous day was filled with a lot of activity. The whole city of Jerusalem was anticipating his arrival. And Mark tells us in verse 11 that Jesus didn't get back to Bethany until it was late at night. Whatever the reason, Jesus was hungry. He was a man. He felt the munchies like us. He wanted something to eat. And that's probably why his attention was drawn toward a fig tree in the distance. And he noticed this tree because Mark tells us in verse 13 that it was in leaf. Because it was in leaf, that meant there was a good chance that this fig tree, this particular fig tree, had some fruit on it. So Jesus went to see if he could find anything on it. And Mark writes that when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. It's like going to McDonald's for a McFlurry. Finding out that the, the machine is down for repair. It's like going to a boba store and finding that out that they're out of boba. It's a letdown. And that fig tree was teasing Jesus. But you're probably wondering... If it wasn't the season for figs, what was Jesus expecting to find? Well, it's important to understand how and when fig trees produce fruit. Typically, fig trees in Israel will produce leaves in March and April. And the Passover feast was uh, around the April time frame. But these fig trees don't typically bear mature fruit until June. So, Why did Jesus think that he would find something at this time of the year? And the answer lies in the fact that fig trees, when they start to leaf, also typically produce some buds before they produce ripe figs. These buds are called pagim in Hebrew, and they're really just small flowers covered in soft skin. Hosea mentions them in Hosea 19, or 9.10, I should say, Hosea 9.10, as the first fruit on the fig tree. These first fruits are are bitter little things, but they can be eaten. And apparently they were sometimes consumed by by those less fortunate who just needed something to eat. And so it's possible, very possible, that Jesus was hoping to find a small little snack just to hold him over. But when he got to that tree, he didn't find anything. And And that not only meant to no snack now, but it also meant no mature figs later. There wasn't anything but leaves on this particular tree. It was a mirage of fruitful potential. It was all show, no substance. There was no fruit, and there would, no, there would be no fruit that season, even though the tree was full of leaves. And so this little tease of a, of a fig tree caused Jesus to respond. And he said to it, in verse 14, "...may no one ever eat fruit from you again." Now, that seems a bit extreme, a first pass. But notice that nothing in verse 14 tells us that this was the impetuous rant of a hungry man. There's nothing that tells us that this was an impulsive outburst. 
There is actually no clear indication that Jesus was even angry here. He simply responded to the lack of fruit that seemingly fruitful fig tree was going to produce or should have produced. He responded to it with the word of measured condemnation. Some of you might think still, poor tree. Even if it wasn't fruitful, why didn't Jesus give it another chance? Maybe there would be fruit next year. Or why didn't Jesus decide to to help the fig tree instead of cursing it? If he could turn water into wine, if he could raise the dead to new life, certainly producing some figs would be nothing to him. Why curse it? Well, Jesus cursed that tree, not because he was mad at it. He cursed it, as we'll soon see, to foreshadow his condemnation of the fruitless activity that was taking place in the temple. Fig trees were often used as symbolic images of God's people in the Old Testament, especially in the prophets. And here, Jesus used this tree as a picture of Israel represented by her leaders. Jesus' initial hunger led him to a tree. But it turned into an object lesson about the devastating lack of spiritual fruit in Israel. And Mark helps us to understand that this was an intentional lesson because he writes at the end of verse 14 that Jesus' disciples heard it. They heard him curse this tree. Jesus wasn't just making some personal, private musings. He condemned this fig tree openly because he was previewing for his disciples what would soon happen as he entered the temple. And that leads us to verse 15. We move from a fruitless tree in verses 12 to 14 to a fruitless temple in verses 15 through 19. A fruitless temple. So verse 15 says, they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple. Coming from Bethany on the east meant that as Jesus entered Jerusalem and the temple mount, he entered directly into what was called the court of the Gentiles. That was the the large outer area of the temple complex. It was open to Jews and Gentiles. In fact, it was the only place that Jews were allowed inside the temple walls. And as you got closer to the temple proper, it became increasingly exclusive. Gentiles weren't allowed into the next area, which was called the court of the women. And women weren't allowed into the court of the Israelites because only Jewish men were allowed to go there, and only the Jewish priests could enter into the court of the priests. And, of course, only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies. It was in the court of the Gentiles where Jesus began clearing people out. Now, you should understand that the temple grounds were massive. They sat on 35 acres of land. The temple complex in Jesus' day was actually much larger than what it had been in the Old Testament. Even though the first temple built by Solomon was beautiful and it was ornate and it was a wonder in those days, it was much smaller than the temple that was around in Jesus' time in the first century. After Solomon's temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, uh, it was rebuilt years later by the exiles who returned to Jerusalem under Zerubbabel. That's all recorded in the book of Ezra. But in about 20 BC, Herod began remodeling that second temple. And Herod's work was impressive. He had a thing for making his mark on history through building projects. And the temple in Jerusalem was his crowning achievement. The temple was a a place of 
of pride for Herod and for the Jews. It, it, it was the center of their religious and political and cultural and economic life. It was a place where money was donated and exchanged. It was the place where many Jews were employed. It was the home of the priests. It was the meeting location of the Sanhedrin. It was where sacrifices were offered. And it was where the Jewish people went on their vacations. But as Jesus entered that temple, he wasn't planning on changing money or helping people keep their job. He wasn't going to a Sanhedrin meeting. He wasn't going to offer a sacrifice. He, he wasn't there because he was on holiday. He went into that temple on a mission. A few years before this, when Jesus was just beginning his ministry, John writes in chapter 2 of his gospel of how Jesus made a, a whip out of cords and drove people out of that temple because they had made his father's house a house of trade. But three years later, Nothing had really changed. After looking around the temple the night before, Jesus saw that the temple economy was still thriving. It was a, a literal bull market. And this upset Jesus. Not receiving a fruit stack on the way into Jerusalem wasn't what made Jesus angry. Not seeing any spiritual fruit in the temple of his father was what really upset him. Instead of spiritual fruit, he just saw leaves. He saw buyers and sellers in the court of the Gentile. These people were providing and purchasing animals for sacrifice. And there is some evidence that traditionally, sacrificed or animals that were to be sacrificed were sold out on the Mount of Olives. Because, like Jesus and his disciples, many pilgrims would pass through that region on their way into Jerusalem. But it was Caiaphas, the high priest, who began to allow trade inside the temple walls in the court of Gentiles in more recent years. And Caiaphas was the son-in-law of Annas, who was the high priest before him and who still held a lot of influence at that time. And you should know that Annas was described by the historian Josephus as a great hoarder up of money. He loved money. Annas was the type of guy who would use violence to steal the tithes that were given to the other priests. And we know from the Gospels that both Annas and Caiaphas seemed to be on good terms. They were both involved in the false trials of Jesus before his death. So it's not hard to imagine why Caiaphas might have allowed the court of Gentiles to be used in the sacrificial trade business. It was good. It was a good opportunity to make money for him. It was a good opportunity, perhaps for his father-in-law, to make money as well. Those who traveled from far away would have appreciated the convenience of approved animals to offer as sacrifices. They wouldn't have to worry about transport, and they wouldn't have to worry whether their, their animal would pass the inspection of a priest. To Caiaphas, the court of Gentiles was leasable, class A commercial space. It was just being underutilized. And so he allowed merchants in. And Jesus also saw the money changers. And they were there because all Jewish men had to pay the half-shekel temple tax each year as required in the Torah. But you couldn't use foreign money to pay this tax, especially since much of that foreign money had emperors posing as gods on it. 
Idolatry of that kind simply would not be allowed. And so the money changers were there to change the, the Greek and Roman coins of the Jewish people into the Tyrian shekel, which was a, a relatively pure and consistent silver coin that approximated the, the old Hebrew shekel that wasn't in circulation anymore. But for this service, these money changers would charge a fee. Estimates range, but some say the percentage was into the double digits. And it's very possible that these money changers did more than just provide that temple tax. With so much available for purchase in the temple complex, it's not a far reach to think that they made a fee for other currency transactions as well. You can think of the potential disputing and bargaining and arguing arguing that would have occurred in, in in a marketplace like the temple, in a typical eastern marketplace. It it would have been useful for a pilgrim to just get their money changed by an authorized vendor. And then Jesus saw people selling pigeons. Pigeons or doves were used for purification, and they were used uh, for cleansing in a number of different instances. But they were used mainly by the poor, because they were the cheapest animal sacrifice. It wasn't just the wealthy who shopped at the the marked-up temple stalls. The poor bought stuff there as well. And lastly, we see in verse 16 that Jesus would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Jesus might not have wanted merchants to use the temple as a shortcut to get to the trade route near the Mount of Olives. The, The temple just wasn't meant to be a thoroughfare. It's also possible that he just wanted to stop all the trade that day and all the sacrificial activity that was going on in the temple. And so in the crowded court of the Gentiles during Passover week, Jesus drove people out. He overturned tables and chairs. He stopped people from carrying things through the court. Jesus was was making a clear statement that he did not approve of the marketplace inside the temple. But there's no reason for us to believe that Jesus had a problem with the kinds of services that these merchants and money changers were providing. Jesus didn't seem to be against the transactions themselves. These sellers and currency traders were providing a a valuable service to those coming into Jerusalem. And Jesus drove both the, the buyers and the sellers out. He wasn't just targeting those who made money. We know that Jesus didn't have a problem with the sacrifices, and he told his followers to pay their taxes. What irked Jesus? What angered him? What prompted this dramatic display of passion by him was the fact that the religious leaders of Israel, the priests of Israel, had allowed this kind of business to be conducted in the temple. It wasn't so much the function but the location of all these stalls that got Jesus going. The temple was no place for this. We see this in verse 17. As Jesus was clearing out the court, he was also teaching. And he went to Isaiah 56, 7. He said to the people inside the temple, Is it not written? Doesn't the Bible say this? Isn't this what the scriptures say? Isn't this what God says? Correct me if if I'm wrong. Otherwise, listen up. Doesn't God say in his word, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Notice here that God's house, the temple, is to be a place of prayer. 
It was meant to be a place where men and women approached their holy God in dependence. It was to be a place of worship. And notice also that it was to be a place for all the nations. God has never just been the God of Israel. His house was meant to be a place for all the nations. Jesus wanted the people to understand by, that by turning the court of the Gentiles into a marketplace, the Jewish leaders had created a, a massive distraction to any Gentile who wanted to come to the temple and pray to God. In a sense, they had effectively blocked Gentiles from worshiping in the only place where they were allowed to worship. Jesus was mad because the purpose of the temple had been, become obscured. It was to be a place of prayer for all people to come and to worship the God of heaven and earth. But under the leadership of the priests, it had morphed into an economic engine that helped to line the pockets of those in charge. And on the surface, it seemed quite successful. It was a place of great religious activity. Josephus writes that 255,000 lambs were sacrificed in that temple during Passover a few years later, or I guess a few decades later, in A.D. 66. This was a leafy place. It was a place that looked like it had a lot of fruit. But instead of being the house of the living God, Jesus called it a den of robbers. He quoted from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. The temple was filled with robbers. It was filled with priests who robbed the people of God by taking advantage of them financially and who also robbed them spiritually by confusing them about the true nature of what it meant to follow God. They, they had made it all about rules and regulations, paying the temple tax, bringing the right sacrifice, attending the right festival. But following God was not a matter of the heart to them. And the temple itself had become a refuge for these robbers. It, it was the place where they felt safe. It was their den. They thought that they could find fellowship and forgiveness with God in the temple, no matter how they behaved and how they stewarded their responsibility. Jesus condemned the leaders of Israel for making the temple a leafy fig tree. All show, all promise, but no fruit. And these leaders got the message. In verse 18, Mark writes that the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. The Sadducees who oversaw the temple wanted to destroy Jesus. But they weren't able to do anything at this time because they feared his influence over the people. The crowd was still astonished by his teaching. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem that Monday morning, he entered knowing what he was about to do. He, he needed to clear out the temple and confront the leaders of Israel for how they had allowed the temple to become a, a place, a marketplace, and how they had led the people away from true worship. And they allowed it because it was profitable for them. But they also allowed it because it was convenient for the people. What a warning that is for us today. It is so easy for churches to become hubs of religious activity, to be full of programs, full of convenience even, but devoid of genuine worship. So alluring as a church leader to give people what they want and to make things easy for them because it often leads to a measure of success and sometimes even to personal wealth and comfort. But that's the path of the Sadducees. 
Pastors and shepherds must always be on guard from leading the people of God into fruitless activity that is convenient, but does not save and does not direct one to truly worship the God of the Bible. If you know me, you, you know I'm not against good coffee at church and a great nursery and welcome gifts and scheduling events to fit people's schedules, but that's not why we come to church. We come to, to get out of the world for a moment and to, to worship the living God as the people of God. Pastors and elders must lead faithfully, but you also have, the, have to have the right approach as you come to worship God. Come ready not just to be a leaf, but to be a, a fruitful member of the church. Come even if it's not convenient. Come ready to bring your own sacrifice of praise. Come ready to embrace and, and not exclude those who are different from you in the name of the Lord. Jesus saw a fruitless tree on his way into Jerusalem, and he condemned it, just like he would condemn the leaders of Israel who had cultivated a fruitless temple. This angered him. It, it, it made them want to kill Jesus, but they couldn't just yet. And so when evening came that Monday, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. But Tuesday was coming. And on Tuesday, we moved from the prevalence of fruitlessness to the prerequisite of prayerfulness. The prerequisite of prayerfulness. In verse 20, it says, As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. The fig tree was totally destroyed. It was withered. Maybe it was uprooted, so they saw its roots. Maybe you could just tell it was dead. It wasn't just fruitless. It was now lifeless. And Peter made the connection. Remember, he heard what Jesus had said earlier in verse 14. He got the object lesson, and, and he said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. It was clear to Peter that the fig tree was done. Jesus' prayer had been answered. And in response to Peter and his disciples, Jesus said in verse 22, have faith in God. Well, Jesus took the opportunity to give them a short lesson on prayer. He wanted his disciples to have faith that God could really answer their prayers. And in verses 23 and 24, Jesus reminded them, and he reminds us, that we need to believe when we pray. We need to believe when we pray. He said, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now, he might have been talking about the Mount of Olives or maybe even the Temple Mount itself. The exact mountain isn't important, though. Jesus was using hyperbole to illustrate the impossible. He wanted his disciples and he wants us to understand that even things that seem impossible can be accomplished by God through prayer. You need to believe that God can do it. Now, most of you know that this isn't a blank check. Jesus himself submitted to his Father's will when he prayed to him on the night before his death. He also instructed his disciples to, to pray to God, your will be done. Well, we can trust that our prayers will be answered when we pray, not just according to our will, but according to God's will. For most of us, our, our problem isn't asking for too much. It's just not asking God at all. 
because we're too self-reliant. We believe in ourselves more than we believe in God. And we need to pray because God can do much more than we can. I can probably make a fig tree's roots wither over time by not watering it or maybe by planting it in a dry place. But I can't do it overnight. And I can't orchestrate history and the movements of men so that temple in Jerusalem is destroyed just like Jesus predicted. God can do those things. Not, not you, not me. So we need to pray trusting in Him and believing that He will answer. That's the first prerequisite of prayer. And the second is that we need to forgive. We need to forgive before we pray. This is what Jesus says in verse 25. When you stand praying, forgive. If anyone, or if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. We don't have a right to ask for God's mercy if we don't show it to others. We need to have the right attitude as we approach God in prayer. Now some... Older translations will also have verse 26. If you're reading the English Standard Version, you'll see a footnote that says, some manuscripts add, but if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your trespasses. And that's true. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 15. And it was included in some of these older translations because it's in some Greek manuscripts. But as better manuscripts were found over the years, uh, verse 26 wasn't in them. So most scholars believe that this verse was added later on by copyists because it just seems so fitting in the context. And that's why it might seem like you're, you're missing a verse in your Bible. But what's most important to note here is that we're reminded by Jesus that we need to forgive others before we pray. We need to pray because God will answer and we need to believe when we pray and we need to forgive before we pray. So, how is all this connected? What does prayer have to do with the tree and the temple? Why did Jesus take time to mention the need for prayer to his disciples after they saw him clear out the temple and saw the fig tree withered on the way? Well, by directing our attention back to this tree in verse 20, Mark underscores the connection of this fig tree to the temple. It's, it's a picture of the temple. Soon the temple wouldn't just be fruitless. It too would be destroyed. Remember that back in verse 17, Jesus called the temple a house of prayer. God's people were always meant to be characterized by worshipful dependence upon him. The, the temple was a place for them to demonstrate that. But because the temple was no longer functioning as it should, because it had just become this commercial enterprise with no genuine spiritual substance, it wouldn't last much longer. And when we get to chapter 13 of Mark, we'll see that Jesus predicted that in no uncertain terms. He told one of his disciples in verse 2 of chapter 13, do, do you see these great buildings? He's talking about the temple. There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The roots of that temple were already drying out, dying out at that time. And in AD 70, it would, the temple would be totally destroyed by the Romans. The great temple of Herod, which saw thousands upon thousands of sacrifices and saw gobs of money exchanged, would be no more. And the temple would no longer stand at the center of Jewish life. 
Because the true people of God would be centered around Christ himself. Through his death on the cross for our sin, the curtain of the temple that kept all of God's people except the high priest from the presence of God would be torn in two. And all those who trust in Jesus would gain access to God through him. That's what the fig tree is trying to show us. The temple would be no more. It was a fruitless place because it was only sustained by lifeless religion. And Christ had come to, be cut, to build a new kind of community. A people in which the Holy Spirit would, would dwell, who themselves would be the temple of God. In Christ, we are a people called to draw near to Him ourselves without any priests mediating that communication for us because Christ Jesus is our high priest. The place where God's people traveled to pray would be gone, but it would be replaced instead by a praying people. Christ came to establish a new community, a praying community. And the lesson here at the end of our passage is that if you don't pray, you're like those Jewish temple leaders. Because without prayer, there is no fruit. We saw that in the temple, and it's true today in the church as well. The danger we face is fruitlessness, just like the Jews in Jesus' day. Fruitlessness is more prevalent than, than we might think, but the way to combat it is to be a people of prayer. If we want to be a fruitful people, we need to pray. Got to be a praying community. We, we need to be a church family that prays for each other. We need to be personally praying for ourselves and for our families and, and for our friends. We, we need to be in the habit of saying impromptu prayers with one another. Now, even though our church isn't a temple, it can still and it should still be a place of prayer. It would be great to see more prayer in the, the parking lots as you know, you are, you're chatting with one another near your cars and, and you learn of some need or some situation. It would be great if people come early to service and just pray in the pews. It would be great to see people praying in the hallways with each other. We can't expect to be a fruitful church if we aren't a prayerful church. Money and wealth can be an engine for church activity. But prayer is the engine of true spirituality. Redeemer, let's not be a church that has lots of leaves but no fruit. I hope that you have seen this morning that though this passage might initially seem a, a little bit disjointed, it all fits together. And it hammers home with vividness our need to be fruitful by being prayerful. Being fruitful isn't just getting baptized and becoming a member and attending church and observing the Lord's Supper. Those are all important things, but they can just become formalities. True fruit is growing in the fruit of the Spirit. It's growing in character. It's living as a faithful follower of Christ and uh, at home and at work and among your friends. It's having holy desires, not just worldly ones. It's an increasing love for the lost and the downtrodden. It's love for the nations and for those who don't look like you. It's bringing others to Christ. And it's undergirded by prayer. I want you to turn with me very quickly to Jude. Okay. Last place we'll go. Jude 
It's the second to last book in your Bible, and I want you to see what Jesus' half-brother had to say to the church. I think it's appropriate. In Jude, the author condemned false teachers, much like Jesus condemned the false leaders of Israel. And Jude wrote this in verse 12 of Jude. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds. And note this, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Same imagery, right? Be on guard against false religion and fruitlessness. Okay, now skip down to verse 20. What is to be the Christian's response to to false leaders and fruitlessness? Jude writes this, verse 20, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, and doing what? Praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. It's easy to be a leafy fig tree, but hard to be a fruitful one. How can you do it? Build yourselves up in the holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God and wait for the mercy of Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we come to you admitting that we are not as fruitful as we should be. We come to you admitting that there are sometimes leaves in our lives, but not true spiritual fruit. Oh, Lord, help us not to be dead Christians. Help us not to be a dying church. Help us to realize how dependent upon you we are. Help us not just to be in love with religious activity that makes us feel good before you, but help us to have a genuine relationship with you, a relationship that is marked by prayer, a relationship in which we talk to you and depend upon you and need you and go to you consistently. Oh, build up the holy faith of this church. Help us to, to be those who, who pray constantly in the Holy Spirit. And we pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Our benediction this morning is from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 to 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.